0: This is podcast number 292, entitled Down Down. And you've just heard an excerpt from a song by Status Quo from 19... 74 which I just think is an absolute masterpiece shall we say it's un peu repetitive but and I've only given you part of the song but it it just has an absolutely natural um, beat and it's the perfect kind of I guess it was called glam maybe era of music but I just don't want to give a name on it Every, everyone is a nominalist today and we have to give names I was reading this long long uh, article the other day about whether a movie called A City Named Hell, I think was the name of it, called The City Called Hell, Um, with an English cast, is actually a spaghetti western or not. It was filmed in Italy and is entirely and completely dependent on the mood of what is called a spaghetti western. But this poor guy, this dweeb, was going on for miles as to whether it fit the category of a spaghetti western. And so I want to say that whether it's glam or not, Down Down by Status Quo is a kind of masterpiece of of communication. Now, that comes to the issue of the cast, which is to say... The longer I keep my um, receptors open to interesting material relevant to grace, law, repentance, the heart of the gospel, the heart of everything that matters, the heart of the Christian faith, and the heart of the human sorrow, and the heart of the human pain, and the heart of the human loss and disappointment and impasse to which any decent religion is ideally and has to be intended to give some kind of solace and hope, the more I look at it, the more I realize that I've been sort of, in a way, for 40 years barking up the wrong tree, not in a major way, don't, don't get upset, but see if you identify with this. <clears throat> I have been spending about 50 years, almost longer, I would almost say coming on to about 61 years, trying to find hints of Christianity in <clears throat> art art that I thought was cool. And it started when I was about nine, but it was really when I was about 11, 12, right around there, I started looking for sort of hints of whatever I was looking for, which had to do ultimately with a compassionate um, Christ, a compassionate, um, empathetic God Merciful, absolving, compassionate, and profoundly, and uh, you might say, uh, totally empathetic. I was always looking for that, but I was because I was always looking for that, which was cool. I would often, sort of, you might say, be um, be gathering up crumbs from works that were actually not intended to be, and in no way really were fundamentally motivated by a uh, Christian <coughs> um, view of God's empathy. In other words, let me give you. I spent so much time involved in the French um, Nouvelle Vague movie, Jules and Jim. I saw that movie when I was 12, and I saw it four times in a row, and uh, never got over it um, with Jean Moreau and Oscar Werner and somebody else. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I saw it actually before I saw Les Quatre Sans Coups, The 400 Blows, which I also thought was the coolest thing. And then I spent time in France and everything. But, you know, these movies are hopeless movies. They're very artistic. I mean, Francois Truffaut, he was an atheist, but he was very artistic and communicated things with powerful, extraordinarily um, creative imagery and editing. And uh, Jules and Jim is basically about a failed love affair uh, on two counts. Two close friends both fall in love and both consummate their love with the same woman who is a very fetching, uh, seductive person. But it is a failed love affair that culminates in a double suicide that's how it ends in a double suicide and we're supposed to think it's kind of funny and it's not at all funny it's, it's a nihilistic movie of total and complete blackout but I would see oh well what about that scene you know oh, you know the scene when they go off and have a picnic lunch on their bicycles and their Edwardian clothes and it was so cool and so dear and I thought well that's really special well it's actually not I thought it was but let's go further along Babette's Feast well um, uh, Oscar Denison, uh, Isak Denison, who was actually, had another name, she, everybody thought when that came out, that was the most Christian thing we'd ever seen. Well, apparently there's a word for it here. We are back in the nominalist territory. There's a word for it, which uh, somehow in the Scandinavian is kind of mock parodies of Christianity or, or um, sort of uh, anti-clerical pictures of Christianity in which you pit the real gospel, i.e. Babette's generosity, to these very impossible pietistic Lutherans up in Shetland, and let alone the man who had pursued her and all the various things, it seems it's all graceful, but in actual fact it's highly, highly anti-church. And Pates, the Christians, as all being total hypocrites and completely immersed in a false picture of life that it takes somebody with reality, but who also has grace. And I fully admit the power of the idea. I've read the book, the story, and I've seen the movie and shown it in churches twice when the youth group dressed up as French women waiters and we just served a big meal to sort of get into the mood of Babette's feast and I understand all that but see it again after you've been a while around a little longer, and you'll see that you were, to a certain extent, reading things into it that were not intended. Yes, they are there because the grace of God is in the script, but um, they're more there than we thought. Or then I would, I would look for you know Howard Hawks is Rio, is Rio Bravo. Are there elements of Christianity? Well, yes, if you really look hard. Now John Ford is definitely. But I began to look at John Ford when I was really in, in a much closer existential. Uh, psychological place of intense parish ministry, and I saw Christian themes which were actually there, and Andrew Saris told me face to face that the quote he called it very condescendingly, I thought the Christian myth of redemption was present in the works L'oeuvre de John Ford, and uh, that is really gathering, you might say, pork chops under the master's table, not simply crumbs, but for the most part whether it was music, whether it was all the different songs that I like, constantly looking for elements of references to Christ, or references to Christ figures and all of that's very wonderful. And there are some bits because a lot of very, very creative people. Grew up in Christian circles because everybody did, and everybody, in some ways, even now, in certain ways, does. But it was um, it was often looking out of desperation or over interpreting uh, modest elements of a um, of a creative person's work. I mean, you can do Van Gogh in a Christian way, or you can do Van Gogh in a agnostic, pantheistic way. Uh, It just depends. Or looking, you know, in Mizuguchi, who's a Buddhist, and had a had a real handle on the on the Shinran style of you know what is it? Bliss, land of promise, Buddha, whatever it's called, Pure Land Buddha. You know, yes, there is there's elements of it there, but it's not really the real thing. Because what I have discovered in recent times, and this is really the heart of what I'm trying to say to you, is that there are in fact works of art that are much more direct in their grappling with and their acknowledgement of <clears throat> and their penetration by the Christian quote, myth of redemption, much more explicit and much more thorough and much more finally heart of, core of the great message of redemption for sufferers and sinners than so many of these movies which were sort of art house attempts to try to find uh, dribs and drabs and bits and pieces. You know, even the Hitchcock fixation. Yes, he did two movies that have strong Christian iconography and in my opinion are very Christian because he was. He died a devout and communicating R.C. But um, what happened is, see, the devil, the demonic, wants to not let you know that there are other works that are just as good by just as fine artists, by just as interesting and committed interpreters, and with just as much finesse that deal directly with what you're interested in, and are in fact far more helpful in the pastoral task and then a great many works in which we're sort of hoping we'll talk, you know, is there something in Forrest Gump? Can we milk some new comic, some superhero thing of its Christian element? Well, um, and I want to just give you a couple of examples and then I'm done. And then we're going to listen to Gilbert O'Sullivan continuing the theme of downness. Um, uh, his song, Get Down, an excerpt from it. Um Let's just think about it. I'm absolutely gripped right now by the works of uh, Paul Iselin Wellman, who is a writer of Westerns almost completely in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and had a couple of his books made into successful Hollywood movies. His brother was Manly Wade Wellman. That's how I found out about him, because Manly Wade Wellman is the hottest long dead but the hottest purveyor of the supernatural horror story in the 50s 60s and even 70s 50s and 60s um as as lovecraft was earlier he is the hot buttoned in the world of people who like supernatural fiction. And his brother, they were both brought up by um, a missionary couple, and there's a long story there because all these artists who dealt with religion like Sinclair Lewis, uh, you know, Elmer Gantry, they all had early childhood experiences, most of them of a fairly legalistic fundamentalist Christianity or e- legalistic evangelical Christianity, and some, you know, like... Um, James Joyce, uh, Catholicism, but there are there are some exceptions to this, which are, as a matter of fact, there are many of them. But it's just the devil doesn't want you to know about them because they're too explicit. They're too, they 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 force legion, they they unmask legion, they cause the devils to come out from behind the rocks, and they don't like the light exposed on them. Let me give you some examples. Paul I. Wellman wrote a book in 1949 that was very successful. It sold about 700 over 700,000 copies. Called the Channel. And it's about an Episcopal priest, Episcopal minister, in a place uh, called Jericho, Kansas, who is the real deal. He comes into a very conventional, rather, UC Episcopal parish, which is complacent, conventional, and pretty proprietary. And he brings in the grace of God, not in a socially progressive way, although it has strong social progressive implications for the excluded on the margins of high society who go to the church. But he doesn't do it in a way based on uh, nonsense. He does it on on a secondary. He does it out of a real uh, uh, love of the gospel. And um, this is by Paul Wellman. You've got to get it. It's available on uh, iTunes. And I want to just read um, a little paragraph from a sermon that the rector whose name, what is his name again? Uh, John Carlyle, he's the new rector. And this is the beginning of uh, an early sermon in his Tenure, which both completely revolutionizes the town and the congregation, and causes enormous positive transformation among everybody whom he touches, and is completely true. Obviously, Paul Wellman must have been an Episcopalian at some point because it is utterly true to the Episcopal Church. You've got to read it, Sarah and R.J. and uh, Ryan and Clarendon, and uh, but uh, any Erona uh, Jacobus, read this. I should have when I was at Trinity, I should have signed this this man uh, totally takes the town by storm with the message of grace, rich and poor, black and white, hispanic and um, um you know wasp. everybody is touched by his message and listen to a paragraph um uh from um what he uh what he when he gets up into the pulpit uh, the rector's burning eyes held them. I wonder said the rector, whether I should call myself a liberal or a conservative. Now he's, uh, This is supposed to be about nineteen, probably in the late forties. Uh, he's writing contempor- contemporaneously with uh, with his world, which is nineteen forty eight America. I wonder, says the rector, whether I should call myself a liberal or a conservative. Theologically, I hope I am a liberal, and yet I cannot feel in my heart with those, quote, liberals who sink into a soft and complacent view of human nature because they are basically superficial. The rector goes on in his sermon, "Will all of their repellent imaginings concerning hell, our ancestors yet were more realistic about the nature of man than the present day so-called liberalism. The rector finishes this paragraph in every one of us, is present something terrible, tragic, and very real, something that wages constant war with our best intentions, our finest endeavors, our highest aspirations. Call it sin or call it something else, but recognize it for what it is. Now then, a lady in the congregation sees the congregation spellbound by an eloquence which was listening to ideas that relentless and uncompromising... Now, you've got to admit, that is something else. Now, um, this uh, grace-filled clergyman, he's a John Zoll, or he's a, a Stu Shelby, or an Aaron Zimmerman, or an Ethan Magnus, or a, um, um, I can think of so many. Uh, you, many of you out there, forgive me if I don't mention your names, but there are not many, but they're enough that I can number them on about... Two hands, Uh, the chain, 1949. Now it is a direct Christian word, just like the novels of um, Taylor Caldwell, who was very conservative politically. But take that away, she was she dealt her parables of grace are extremely powerful. She was a Roman Catholic, although I think she grew up an Episcopalian and she knew everything about everything. But don't read her book, The Listener, which I've referred to before and some of you have read. It's unbelievably profound. Now, and it relates to what we're talking about. Take the the book Men and Brethren, 1936 by James Gould Cousins. Have you heard of it? Well, I spent years living as a child on the building where it was written uh, on the Upper East Side of New York City by James Gould Cousins. And it's a letter-perfect picture of a dedicated Episcopal minister on the, in a poor parish off the Upper East Side, on the riverside of Park Avenue, sort of more towards 1st, 2nd, 3rd Avenue, in the Yorkville despondent section uh, of, of New York, uh, where he has a mission of a much larger church based on St. Bartholomew's Park Avenue. And this is the real deal, men and brethren, nineteen thirty six. It's entirely about forty eight hours in the life of a of a hard working parish minister. In New York City. But I haven't finished. Um, Have you ever heard of something called Passing of the Third Floor Back? Well, I've just read it. 1909 by an English author with the great name Jerome K. Jerome, who actually wrote a very famous book that you've probably read or heard of. I think it's called Two Men in a Boat, something like that, but maybe Three Men in a Boat, but I think it's Two Men in a Boat. But Passing of the Third Floor Back is a Christ parable of the clearest sort, but with tremendous sympathy and understanding. It's definitely a Jesus Christ parable, and it was made into a movie in 1935 in England, with many very good actresses, actresses including Conrad Veit as the Christ figure, and it is a powerful um, diagnostically realistic view of all the different sins of people living in a rooming house, a rather slightly upper class, uh, kind of you might call it, a residential hotel in London, who whose lives are in complete and total denial, chaos, temptation, and uh, consummation of darkness to which a Christ figure comes. But I haven't finished. Remember uh, George Eliot's first novel? Not Adam Bede and not the Daniel Deronda, and they're all wonderful and they're all great. Um, and not Middlemarch, but the first one she wrote, you know, she became an atheist. Well, I would call it an agnostic, moving in the direction of atheism, based on her childhood experiences of an evangelical rector in her parish in Leicestershire in England. And I think it was in the 1840s, but her first novella in a larger collection called Scenes of Clerical Life is called Janet's Repentance, and it's about a very young, single, evangelical Church of England minister who's been converted through Charles Simeon in Cambridge. Cambridge, who comes into a very, very complacent small town. You might call it the analogy of the Babette's Feast people, or but he's a clergyman. Or um, what I just was saying about the London uh, residential hotel. He comes into a typical small, complacent, stratified English village, and he preaches the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, and the place is turned upside down. And because um, George Eliot never lost her respect for the young clergyman who had labored so passionately and so selflessly... In her small, uh, near Nuneaton, actually it's in Warwickshire, near Nuneaton in Warwickshire, she wrote and dedicated her first major work, and it continues to be a major work of pastoral understanding, Janus Repentance. But I haven't finished! I'd Climb the Highest Mountain. Have you ever seen that movie? Made in 1953 with um, Susan Hayward and William Lundigan and a number of other. But Susan Hayward, are you out of your mind? I mean, this is a major actress. It was based on a uh, a sort of autobiographical uh, novel by the wife, the Episcopalian wife of a Methodist uh, pastor. Parson uh, in the hills of North Georgia, uh, really with what we would call Appalachian type population. And uh, she married this man from one, she was from one kind of UC background, you might say, middle, upper middle class. And she married a guy from the middle class who was utterly committed. And they went and they, they had this extraordinary ministry. And this woman uh, wrote uh, two books about it. He died. Her husband died young, but uh, a movie was made based upon this very best-selling, who would have thought, um, a movie made in 1953 with a major Hollywood actress, and it was directed by a major Hollywood director and had another major actor in it, you'll notice, and it's called I'd Climb the Highest Mountain. And if you watch it, it's available. It's one of the most moving pictures of a of a self-sacrificing, profoundly... Um, Loving clerical marriage that you've ever seen in your life and it ultimately ends up in a um a kind of confession of faith in which the whole uh the whole congregation sings the lord's prayer in a way that is so powerful and so well done you don't need babette's feast you don't need to look at the crumbs underneath acdc or you don't have to say well you know is really lemmy you know is lemmy really maybe close to what we're thinking of or Hey, didn't Squeeze have a Christmas single? I mean, maybe maybe Squeeze, you know, tempted by the... No, you know the song about Jesus that they did, which is cool. Um, you don't have to go... You don't have to stretch. You don't have to stretch. So I've talked about men and brethren, the chain, passing of the third floor back... I'd climb the highest mountain, chant us repentance, and believe it or not, there are many more. We've only just begun to live. Well, that's what I wanted to say. Um, You've been, like me, uh, uh, snared by the belief that everything has to be mediated through some kind of veil to be acceptable to people who might otherwise not accept it. That's really not true. The more time I spend with Paula White and the more time I was at church the other day that seats 7,000, 6,000 people on Sunday and there are three services each Sunday and each one of them is completely filled. Now, I mean, give me a break. You, it, it, people are suffering out there. People are in trouble. Read the chain. He just, this pastor just goes right into the human need and wades into it and not seeing class and color and race. He sees nothing except the universal loss of human uh, disease and trouble and suffering and pain. And he wins because he has an unshakable belief based on the pain that was cauterized in his own life that God is, you know, what is it? Uh, The resurrection power, what's that song? Uh, That resurrected power um, has resurrected me. And that is what gives uh, great ministries their passion and their power. I wish I'd like to dedicate this to all of you who identify with this. I could name many names, but I'd leave the best out probably by definition. I keep forgetting David Browder, for example, when I say these things. And what a great guy. Anyway, thank you very much. And now enjoy Gilbert O'Sullivan from April 1974. Love you.